and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, the first fight you ever went to was the biggest upset in the history of boxing, and now you're calling the fight which will succeed it as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. You cannot, at a moment like that, deny that destiny takes a hand. I was meant to be there. So all of it blows me away emotionally because when I call a fight, I now understand and realize that I'm doing what I was meant to do. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's special episode of Tourist Information. My guest, somebody I've been trying to have on the show for a long time, is Jim Lampley, longtime voice of boxing for HBO. My opinion, the best to ever do it. He is coming back to Triller. We talked about his history covering the sport, covering sports. I think 14 Olympic Games he has covered and celebrity boxing, CTE in boxing, after previous guest, Tris Dixon, his great book, Damage. Lampley has some really interesting views about CTE and a sport where he's watched four people die in the ring and um, even got into his friendship with O.J. Simpson, which was kind of a strange place to go. But I, I thought it was something to bring up because I'd never heard anybody ask who knew OJ whether CTE symptoms were something that they had witnessed. And it was something that was consciously omitted from the fabulous documentary Made in America. Um, So lots of stuff here. Uh, I apologize about the connection. Sometimes recording phone calls doesn't work out so great. But uh, I hope you enjoy Jim Lampley, this week's guest on Tourist Information. So maybe we should just start with after, what, two and a half years uh, outside of calling boxing. Um, Why Triller and what's it like to be back? Because we're certainly glad to have you. Well, I um, was pretty comfortable with the notion that I was not going to be calling boxing matches anymore. Uh, It just seemed as though that was what fate had decreed. and uh, and I was okay with that. I mean, I, I at a moment that I called that last boxing match on HBO, uh, December 8th of 2018, I had had a more than 44-year, nearly 45-year career in network television on the air. Um, that's significantly longer probably than the average sports commentator arc. Uh, I had worked for all the commercial networks and then 30 years at what I regarded as the premier place to work, HBO. Um, And when COVID came along, uh, it kind of put a stop to the boxing business for a while, or at least limited it so significantly that um, there was no rush of people to my door to, uh, to talk about this. So I was pretty comfortable with the idea of, you know, I'm a boxing spectator. I read the magazine. Uh, I enjoy the sport that I covered. I still have uh, a million friends in boxing for whom I will be forever grateful. And and that's that. Um, and, and then I began to get little feelers here and there. Um, 
sometimes intermediary parties reaching out saying, you know, what do you think? Are you interested in doing anything? Da, 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 da. And, of course, I call fights. That's what I do. And, and uh, by no means did I feel as though I was not capable of, of doing that anymore. If somebody wanted to talk to me seriously about calling uh, fights, then it was a conversation worth having. And um, very suddenly, with no particular um, prior outreach or uh, initial uh, conversation, Triller reached out. And Triller made a a very aggressive, uh, very spirited offer, uh, making clear that they really wanted me to come and call their fights. And the first fight that I would call, uh, you know, I, I keep using the word legitimacy, the first fight that I would call would be uh, a meaningful fight in the career of the Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year, who just months ago, uh, scored a spectacular win over the guy whom I had spent several years um, gradually building and describing as the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. So, you know, to, to, to come back with the chance to sit ringside at a Teofimo Lopez fight, when Teofimo Lopez, in my view, has the talent to possibly become if not the next big thing, then certainly a next big thing, uh, was extremely attractive offer. And, uh, you know, and when you're sitting at home and you have no idea whether you're going to go to the prom, and, and suddenly uh, someone who has some social cachet and, and has uh, the wherewithal to... Uh, you know, buy you a new suit of clothes and make you look good going to the prom, uh, reaches out and makes that kind of an offer, then you pay attention. And um, from the first moment that I heard about the conversation with my representatives and uh, and they laid out to me everything that Triller was expressing, my thought process was, Tefima Lopez, uh, what a future he could possibly have Let's go. And uh, so that's why I decided to come back. And, you know, I I wanted to hear from you what it's been like. You recently moved to North Carolina where you have been teaching at your alma mater the evolution of storytelling in American news media from 1920 to 2020. And American electronic news media. You know, Sorry. Not, not dealing with print media, not dealing with uh, anything other than the evolution of storytelling in electronic news media, because I think that's, that's the area where uh, the public reception and understanding of news as news has been most affected. Mm. And what has that been like for you? What, what, what has been most interesting about that experience? Hard work. Um, I I had to develop a course from the ground up. I had to allow it to be uh, vetted and examined by the academic authorities in the uh, University of North Carolina's uh, Department of Communications. Uh, I had to uh, think about what I was going to say and do in the classroom all the way through an entire semester in a very disciplined way. Uh, I had to do a kind of work that I probably haven't done since I was in graduate school. And, oh, by the way, 
it would be one thing if I were teaching something to do with sports television, which is where I worked for 44 years, but that wasn't what I chose to do. I mean, the conversation between me and the communications department began very exploratorily several years ago. And uh, eventually, uh, the the chairwoman of that department made clear to me, look, you know, we think you have something meaningful to say to students. Uh, just figure out what it is that you want to say. And I came back and said, this is what I want to do. And they were impressed with the ambition of it. Uh, and, and they did kind of, you know, uh, mention to me that, I was going to need to do a great deal of work to get this thing into the right shape to deliver in a classroom. And I did. And uh, and I guess I did okay, even though we were interrupted by COVID, because the first semester uh, in which I taught it was the spring semester of 2020. So I began doing it in early January. And then by late March, um, it was, it was, it needed to be converted. And I wound up converting the second half of the course to an old-style correspondence course because I didn't like the way it worked on Zoom with 23 students. I wasn't adapted to that yet. And I, I finished the semester um, in, such a, in such an acceptable and coherent fashion that they were more than willing to continue the process and go back to doing it uh, whenever we went back here to in-person teaching at UNC, and that turns out to be uh, now. So fall semester, communications 490, 490, not 190, uh, for for seniors and graduate students uh, will be back up and running. Hmm. And I, I am kind of bracing myself to ask you this question, but I have to. Um, your view of celebrity boxing and social media's impact on boxing. I've been listening to some of your interviews prior to talking to you today. I believe you called social media's impact the most destructive force that you've seen in your lifetime. I did. Uh, and, and I'm thinking largely of its effect on politics, but also its effect on uh, cultural and social standards in a variety of ways. I, my wonderful wife, who um, does practice some social media communication was very eloquent and um, and forthright in saying to me that you you are ignoring Jim all of the positive uh, effects of social media you're ignoring the reunification of families and uh, parents and children who may have been separated from one another you are. Uh, ignoring a lot of old friends getting back together. You're ignoring uh, the effect of dating websites such as the one where we met, because I met her on Match.com. Um, and, and I confess, yes, she's probably right. I am, um, in fact, she's more than probably right. She's right. I am, I am not giving sufficient credit to some positive benefits of social media. But when, when I look at... Um, Celebrity boxing, I very strongly believe that wouldn't exist without social media. I mean, it's right there in the identity of the Pauls, who are routinely described in publications like Ring Magazine as, quote, YouTube fighters. Uh, so what is a YouTube fighter? He's somebody whom 
the social media public imagines to be a fighter. He is not the kind of person who has put in all of the years of dedicated training and apprenticeship and, and growth that goes into becoming a legitimate professional fighter. The background of someone like Floyd Mayweather and the background of one of the Pauls, those are two different things. So I'm not denigrating the individuals involved. I have nothing against Jake or Logan Paul. I have nothing against anybody else who builds themselves up to uh, be seen as something they really aren't through the vehicle of social media. Um, but I, I do worry about people who manage to get into the political sphere, sphere and, and, and make noise that appeals to um, certain elements of the public ear via social media because I think that's corruptive to our long-term process. Mm. Well, and it's been interesting also reading the reaction from many critics who, who've voiced this view that this is going to fizzle out, that boxing has always had sideshows. Ali participated in them. Jack Dempsey participated in them. Joe Lewis. Um, but, but I'm wondering, do you see a parallel with sort of professional wrestling taking over real wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, where nobody in America knows who won the last gold medal at the Olympics in Greco-Roman re- wrestling? I'm exaggerating, but for the most part, you know what I mean. But everybody knows who Hulk Hogan is. This is a multi-billion-dollar organization. Um, social media. We had a social media president by virtue of being a reality TV show president. The Kardashians are multi-billionaires. At the same time, we have a golden era in television. Like, I, I don't necessarily see the argument that this is going away when it seems so profitable. Well, obviously, there's a fundamental contradiction. Uh, as you just described it, in the notion that is, quote, going away when uh, a part of that is the acknowledgement that it has gone on for decades. I mean, Muhammad Ali uh, participated in these kinds of, of events. Jack Dempsey participated in these kinds of events. So the bottom line is it's not going away. Uh, it's gathering steam, again, because of social media. And, you know, the the analogy that you drew with regard to politics, you're speaking my language. Uh, and so do I fear what happens in the future? Yeah. How, you know, I, I had not thought of the wrestling analogy, but it does make a lot of sense. Uh, my wife and I, because she is a former collegiate wrestling manager, we go to the University of North Carolina's wrestling competitions here on campus uh, against the other ACC schools and uh, some other top wrestling uh, schools. The first sports that we went to when we arrived in Chapel Hill was UNC versus Princeton Wrestling. You're right. You don't see that on TV anymore. You don't even see the NCAA championships that uh, I used to televise twice back in the 80s on ABC's Wide World of Sports. I think they probably do appear on ESPNU, but how big is the audience? Uh, not nearly what the audience is for the, the, the so-called sport, which isn't really a, a competitive sport, of um, professional wrestling. So, yeah, you've already, you yourself, within the questions, cited the perfect example of, of what boxing has to fear uh, from the continued growth of these kinds of events. Is there anything that boxing can do 
to move toward what has made these things successful? Like, is there a way for boxing to evolve? Boxing always talks about tradition, but what do you think boxing could do to modernize, to, I, I guess, reclaim more of a market share from, I, I've heard you say many times that every sport is fringe in America except the NFL. Can boxing in any way reclaim some of its position? Like, is there anything you can see as prescriptions to help improve its health? Well, I don't think there's any structural organizational prescription. I mean, you and I both know the limitations of official authority in boxing. Uh, you know, that's, that's an area where the sport was already struggling before this particular recent tide came along. Uh, and, and the sport has struggled for a long time, uh, going back to the days of organized crime and on through the days of uh, competition between uh, smaller numbers of governing bodies, and now uh, the era of competition among governing bodies, among streaming services, among all sorts of organizational entities which seek um, operational footholds within the power structure of boxing. So to to say that, oh, you know, the WBC is going to make a rule which will in some way control or put a stop to the bastardization of the sport and its standards by a commercial force that is gaining power as we go along. No, that's that's not something you can hope for or even begin to contemplate. What it requires is that people within the sport, promoters, managers, decision makers, streaming services with money, uh, all discipline themselves to honor and preserve the competitive standards that make boxing great when it's great. And even the most ardent boxing fan or supporter has to acknowledge, hey, sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not great. It's great when we see two tremendous fights between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin because they're clearly the best fighters in their division and they rise to the top through a legitimate competitive process and they face each other and the fights are so excruciatingly close, it's almost impossible to pick a winner, but every round is unbelievably spirited and human and entertaining. That's when boxing is great. When Floyd Mayweather goes in at age 44 to fight somebody who's in his second so-called professional fight, that's not great. Uh, and, and the fact that there's maybe a bigger audience demand for the latter than for the former lamentable to be sure but as you said it's been going on for decades we just have to hope that there are enough people in the sport to form a critical mass that will push back and help to continue to honor and support the really great professional events like canelo versus triple g there was a book that came out recently by tris dixon called damaged looking at the effects of cte in boxing the book was inspired by uh, Steve Fainaru's book, um, NFL League of Denial. Um, I wonder if you could speak to all of this, these decades that you've covered boxing. What are your views on CTE? I mean, would you let your kids participate in boxing? Should parents be concerned about involvement in the sport going forward? Well, I probably would not if I had young children uh, at this point, uh, and I've had them in the past, obviously. Uh, I probably would have discouraged any of them uh, from participating in professional boxing. Now that I know the things that I know, and I began my 
uh, professional sportscasting career as a football guy. I spent a great deal of time covering both college football and professional football. I'm not sure what I would say to a son of mine who decided that he wanted to play football other than to recommend that he make sure he's got the best possible helmet and and talk to uh, his doctor about the things that he or she should be concerned about. I mean, at the end of the day, the more we know, the less we want to know uh, about things like CTE. And um, I remember watching uh, the great Will Smith movie uh, with my wife, and in the last piece of the picture in the movie, we see two youth football players going toward each other with their helmets aimed at a collision, and, and the movie stops. And it's a spectacular vehicle for making you think. And, um, yeah, we need to continue to gather psychological knowledge. We need to listen to the people who know something about it. Uh, and we need to let every individual make their choice. And I have the financial and economic comfort of saying, no, I would probably never have urged my children to do that sort of thing. But not everybody's in that position. Uh, the beautiful thing about boxing that I've loved from the get-go since I first watched it when I was six years old is that you don't have to look hard to see. This is a vehicle for getting people from nowhere to somewhere. This is, this is a vehicle for taking people toward horizons they could never have dreamed of um, unless they got to them through this particular sport, through this particular path in life. Am I going to say we need to shut that path off for everybody? No, that's not fair. I shouldn't be in the position of saying that. Some people need this chance, and um, and I'm happy for those who get it. Um, I will never forget, and uh, excuse me for going on at length here, Bren, but it's a very meaningful subject for me. I have watched four fights uh, after which men were taken to a hospital and uh very carefully and and uh and very uh, energetically treated and then were eventually uh declared dead. I've seen that four times. Um and and the last of them was Leavander Johnson against Jesus Chavez, a fight took place in uh, Las Vegas. And you can look it up. I wrote a uh I wrote a column afterward uh, for Huffington Post called Death in the Ring. And the essence of the column was, yes, we're tremendously sad, and we lament the death of Levander Johnson, and it's terrible that it happened, and we feel awful for his children. But realistically, Levander Johnson came from the roughest, toughest, most difficult circumstances imaginable uh, in the slums of Atlantic City, New Jersey. At the end of the day, if you look carefully at his life, he probably had only one way up the ladder. This was it. And, and because he chose that path, and because he devoted two decades of his life to being a boxer, he saw Paris. He fought in Madison Square Garden. He earned the kind of money that could send his kids not just to the better schools around Atlantic City, but uh, probably at least for some years, private schools. He achieved a position in life that he could never realistically have achieved without boxing. So, which is right. We say 
no, no more boxing because it's head trauma and we can't stand that, or we say, let's do the best we can from within the sport with the best of medical authorities. And, oh, by the way, one more note. Leavander Johnson died despite the fact that the very best ring doctor in the history of the sport, Dr. Margaret Goodman, was sitting at ringside controlling the medical aspects of the fight. So in some instances, you can't stop it. But do you kill the whole sport because of that? I think it's a very, very hard equation, very difficult. Uh, and uh, the universe has so far in its wisdom chosen to say that boxing continues. So I... I support that, and I hope to do the best I can in supporting standards that will help to keep people alive and healthy and cognizant of who they are going forward in life. Yeah. Um, in terms of the media covering this issue, um, I thought of you. I was re-watching OJ Made in America, and I listened to an interview with the director, Ezra Edelman. It's just a phenomenal film. And he was asked, what did you not include in this film? What what angle did you not approach that you were interested in approaching? And he said it was the CTE issue with OJ. I interviewed a number of people, experts on that issue, but I did not in any way want to allow CTE to influence the perception of anything that OJ did. And I just wondered, as somebody that knew him professionally and then personally, I've never heard anybody talk about whether people who knew him saw evidence of CTE potentially influencing the evolution of his behavior. Well, let me say this. I knew him very well, and um, I knew him professionally and personally, as you say, and I uh, spent a good deal of, of time with him, and, and I loved him then, and I love him now. He was... Um, as good a friend, as loyal a friend, as sweet a friend uh, as anyone could ever have among all of the major public figures. And you would have to have been alive in the 60s and 70s to really understand what a major public figure O.J. was. He was cosmic. Uh, of all of those people I've ever known, he was the most thoughtful, the warmest, the most loving, and the best. That's why so many people stuck up for him and insisted on an illogical view uh, when the facts of the matter were abundantly clear. So um, having said all that, the answer is no. I never saw anything that suggested CTE to me. I never saw anything like memory loss. I never saw uh, spontaneous, bizarre behaviors. Uh, I never saw any of that. The only thing I saw was what I've seen for many of my friends uh, and in, in at least one case for me, a toxic relationship with someone he loved uh, and, and tremendous difficulty in harnessing all of the emotions relative to a toxic relationship with someone he loved. That's what I saw. And, and I'm sorry that that befell him and it befell me at one time too. And, uh, and you have to try to learn from that and, and go forward with your life as best you can. Hmm. Um. I wondered, with with the discussion of social media's impact on boxing and society and everything, what was the best and worst thing about calling fights when you began, unbelievably, with Mike Tyson as your first fight that you called, compared to the best and worst thing about calling fights now? Well, the best thing um, about calling fights uh, when I began was that uh, I was 
sitting in an extremely prominent chair in the sport with no particular background and having done it. I had absolutely no experience calling fights before I uh, went to upstate New York to call my fights in against Jesse Ferguson in uh, 1986. Uh, and, uh, and I realized that day that, that I had just happened on to a sports commentator's goldmine because this was clearly going to be the number one quote machine in the sport, if not the number one quote machine in sports. That was a that Mike said in the post-fight interview, I was trying to drive his nose bone into his brain as a uh, description for the intended effect of the uppercut. It was clear that there was going to be drama and entertainment in this. Um, and, and the worst thing uh, was that I had to learn in a very short period of time how to sound credible on the air as a boxing commentator. And I, I lucked out in that the person who was my expert commentator at ABC Sports was a guy named Alex Wallow, who had been the company's executive in charge of acquiring and governing televised uh, boxing events, and, uh, and who knew uh, he, was, he was a privileged young man, but he had been in boxing gyms all his life, and he knew everything about the sport. And before we ever went up to call Tyson Ferguson, even though I had been watching boxing matches since I was six years old, um, Alex called me up to his New York apartment day after day after day, and we would sit and watch four or five hours of videotape boxing over and over. And, and he would show me how the uh, inside fighter holds on the side opposite from the referee so that the referee can't see it. He showed me how when a southpaw faces a, a conventional fighter, the advantage belongs to whichever fighter gets his foot to the outside of the other guy's lead foot. All the, the little nuances that you don't know if you're just casually watching it, uh, as opposed to if you've been in gyms, if you've talked to trainers, if you understand the real uh, minutiae of the sport. He spent a lot of time. He didn't have to do it. It was his personal initiative to spend a great deal of time teaching me those things so that I wouldn't sound like a blooming idiot uh, when I first went on the air calling fights. And to this day, I never, ever call a fight without saying a little prayer of thanks to Alex Wallow for everything he taught to me and the credibility he gave me uh, out of the generosity of his heart. Hmm. Um, I was given, I've only had an assignment like this once, to do an obituary for somebody before they were gone, and that was with Muhammad Ali, and you were the first person I called, along with a few other people that knew Ali closely. Um, I wondered, uh, Ken Burns just sent me the screener for his new Ali documentary, which um, is incredible. I think it comes out in September. But I, I have not spoken to you since Ali's death, he, he actually died on my birthday on 2016, which is very strange. And I, I just wondered how, how it feels that he's no longer here anymore, somebody who was so important for you. Uh, you know, I, I never heard such emotion that you express when you talk about Ali's legacy from the beginning of your connection to him to getting to know him as a friend later on, but I, I have heard from to you. Babysitting my eight-year-old daughter. Um, yeah. To, to doing all the things and saying all the things that made him who he was. You know, I apologize that my voice breaks, but it's very, very difficult for me to talk about Ali. And 
uh, you know, I'm still so connected to all those details. I mean, you tell me that he died on your birthday. You're a Gemini. Uh, you know, it, it's it's all very meaningful to me. And um, and I, you know, I I think that as we go through a, a continuous reevaluation now of how we define and relate to um, racial consciousness in American society. Uh, I'm very grateful that Ken Burns' documentary will come out now because it's so important for people on every side of that particular question to remember, excuse me, to remember this man and remember the courage he portrayed in presenting to the public his version of the truth, why he believed in his version of the truth, what it meant to him and what it could mean to us. Um, and uh, when you look at that life arc and all of the various gradations along the way in his relationship to the public, uh, you cannot be in any way other than awestruck with uh, the innate level of understanding and intellect that he brought to it, the innate level of emotional commitment and depth that he brought to it, the relevance to the lives that we all lead in a multiracial society, uh, and and the kinetic genius that that he portrayed in achieving his position and articulating it the way he did. It's still a unique miracle in American society, and we are a different society than we would have been had not he lived on this planet for the time that he did. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about your phenomenal memory. I think we've already heard you throw out dates for things. I've never heard anybody with a memory for dates like you have, and I've heard you mention tributing it to your father's death when you were so young, that if you forgot anything, it was it was gone in a way that your your father was for you, and this seems like a huge ingredient in in what has shaped you and made you so successful in life. This this wound, if that's fair to say, I just wonder if you could talk a bit about that and and that your mom raised you in. Uh, in, in an attempt to anticipate how your father would have raised you, which I've never heard of before in quite so explicit terms. It, it... Well, um, my my wife uh, is the one who has concretely pointed out the truth about this, which is, Jim, in all the stories that you tell and all of the ways that you relate your life to other people, the single thing you say most often is one little set of words, and that single thing is, my father died when I was five years old. And yes, uh, if if you spend two days with me and you explore my life and ask me stories about it, uh, you're going to hear ad nauseum, my father died when I was five years old, because it, it did, in fact, have a tremendous impact on my life. One impact was that the following year, in 1955, uh, my mother walked me down the hall at a, a party for adults at someone else's house in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and sat me down in front of a television set and said, black and white television set, of course, and said, uh, sit here, 
you're going to watch the Friday night fights. Uh, this will be Sugar Ray Robinson against Bobo Olson. It's their second fight. Uh, and everything you need to know about boxing, you're going to learn in the next hour and a half from Don Dunphy. He's the broadcaster. So I do remember that moment, and I do remember <clears throat> sitting and listening to Don Dunphy, and then I listened uh, to Dunphy tell me about the uh, Tiger and uh, and Carmen Basilio and Gene Fulmer and that whole generation of fighters in the 50s going into the 60s. And I remember uh, very vividly watching the Rome Olympics on CBS in 1960 and seeing a light heavyweight medal contender from the United States named Cassius Clay. All those things are very vividly marked in my memory stream from childhood. And, and yes, um, my father died when I was five years old, and I can also vividly remember lying awake at night and thinking to myself that if you if you forgot something, it's lost. You you could never get it back. I used to try to memorize my details of experience with him. I memorized the way his scratchy um, shirt jacket felt against my teeth. I memorized the smell of Budweiser beer on his breath. It was all important to me. Once I started going to school, I would come home, lie awake, and memorize the seating arrangements in the classrooms until I eventually reached uh, my senior year in high school at Southwest Miami High, and I can still remember everybody who'd ever been in a classroom with me and where they sat. So all of that leads me to believe that I unconsciously trained my memory for what it now does. Now, interestingly, post-COVID, my memory's not as good as it used to be. There are certain details that, that maybe I've forgotten for the first time in my life, but it's still... It's still there as part of my identity. It's still something that I that I bring to the table for me and for anybody who who hires me to work. That I can remember things, and I, you know, I, it wasn't a show-off move to sit ringside for HBO and be able from time to time to quote in the course of commentary that on which a particular fight had taken place in the past. That was just reflex for me uh, because I trained my memory. In, in an attempt to hold on to my father after he was gone. Do you remember your father's voice clearly? No. 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 I, I, you know, I, I remember, again, I remember those small details that I've described, and I do not vividly remember uh, his voice. And, and you know, I, I would attribute that to the fact that I was fine. But uh, that... That was not one of the things I remember. I, I remember the grass stain on his white T-shirt when he would come in from playing golf, and he would clean his ball against his shirt uh, because he didn't have as many ball cleaning apparatus on golf courses at that time as is the case now. But I don't remember the sound of his voice. I asked because I heard uh, something that totally blew me away. That for somebody who's earned fifty for fifty years earned their living with their voice. Um, and as the the greatest narrator of high drama that boxing's ever had, that you hate your voice. Oh, I do. I, I've, I've hated my voice from the moment I became a broadcaster. Um, and that's just, you know, I think that's sort of human nature. Because the first time you hear your recorded voice after you have begun speaking on the air, and this is, you know, this is now a universal experience because all of us are recording. Uh, but when I first started doing radio in Chapel Hill, 
when I was in graduate school in 1971 and 72, I had never heard my voice uh, recorded on tape before. And the first time I heard it, when I was driving the car and I heard something come across the radio that sounded strikingly familiar because I knew those words from somewhere, it took me several seconds, I want to say five or ten seconds, to realize, oh, my God, that's me. Um, so, yeah, I've never, I've never loved it. And uh, that's just a, a small idiosyncrasy. I, I, you know, there are people who walk up to me uh, in the vegetable area at the grocery store and say, oh, my God, uh, I just need to hear your voice. Would you say something to me? Because they have attached to it over the years, and it's familiar to them. And, you know, they they want to put the voice, the voice with the face right in front of them. I've, I've had that uh, experience, and it's extremely flattering. And I'm glad that they like it. But it's not my favorite thing about me, no. I'll tell you what, though. You asked the question whether I could remember my father's voice. I can remember my mother's voice like it was yesterday, okay, hmm. uh, because that's the voice which I grew up with. That's the voice that governed my life. That's the voice that controlled everything from the time I was five until way later than that. So, yes, her voice I can remember, but not his. I, I just wonder if there was some irony that you had inherited his voice in the way that certainly I have with my father and many, many friends I know have of their father um, that you would hate something that would be so valuable to so many seems like a strange irony to me. Yeah, and I have no idea whether my voice is anything like his or not. I've never heard anybody discuss that uh, in my family. Hmm. Um, I wonder, as somebody who's covered 14 Olympic Games, I've never heard you ask, it's, it's probably just my own ignorance, but what are some of the moments that have stood out to you the most of covering the game since 1976 when you first started covering it? Well, I mean, countless. Uh, and, uh, and you know, it's a long stream that that is very, very difficult to sort of edit down for the purposes of a conversation like this because there are just too many of them. Um, but consider that uh, the very first day of Olympic competition – I ever experienced as a reporter was uh, the first day of competition at the Winter Olympics at Innsbruck, Austria in 1976. I was assigned to go to Patrick Opel Mountain to do some kind of story about the atmosphere at the downhill, uh, and I became a live witness to the single most revered and unforgettable ski race run in the history of the sport. That was the day Franz Klammer uh, won his Olympic downhill gold medal in uh, the most, what is still to this moment, the most visually stirring ski run you could ever see on videotape, uh, which was a giant event for the cultures of Austria and its uh, competing nation, Switzerland. Uh, and they competed with each other via the economics of the ski industry, and you could see that and feel that on the hill that day. Um, and, you know, I look back still to this day in wonder and awe that that was the first Olympic event I ever saw live. And and then when you consider all the others, when you consider the extreme accident that after two weeks of covering politics and organizational upheaval and barely touching sports in Lake Placid, I was sent to the hockey arena uh, between periods one and two 
on Friday, February 22, 1980, to try to get an interview to close the show on the night when we were showing the United States against the Soviet Union on tape. Uh, people to this day still believe that they watched a live broadcast of the United States versus the Soviet Union that night, that they watched Mike Ruzioni's goal go in live to give the United States. It's truly incredible. Uh, and the star 4-3 win in that game, not sure. They watch it on videotape. Uh, and as I was the person who, who had to go hold on to Ruzioni and Craig all night long so that they could stand and flank me on Main Street of Lake Placid at the end of the evening. I could go on and on and on, Brent. We don't have time. <laughs> but at, at the end of the day, I remember it all. And, uh, and I remember it in this giant sort of panoramic, panoramic tableau of incredible memory after incredible memory after incredible memory. And, and believe me, the one thing I always say to my friends is the most overused word in the culture is incredible. And I try to avoid using it when I can. But in relation to those events, no other choice works. Hmm. Just two more questions. Is that okay? I hope so. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, I wondered if Manny Pacquiao was about to take on a giant challenge with Errol Spence. And he's been boxing now for, I think, almost a quarter of a century. Is he the closest that we have, in your view, to, to Muhammad Ali for this generation, given what he's given to fans well, of he's boxing? He's very analogous to Muhammad Ali in terms of what he has meant to his national culture, what he has meant to uh, the Filipino population as a symbol and an icon. He's he's more universally beloved than Ali was, but of course, uh, as a great actor once told me, longevity is lovability, so the longer you hang around, the more people are going to choose to love you. Certainly that happened with Ali. Uh, I don't know whether that will happen with May or not, but... Yes, in a, in a lot of ways, um, he is the Muhammad Ali of the Philippines. Uh, that's inescapable. Uh, and and what an amazing person. I mean, I, and, you know, I still remember him coming into a fighter meeting uh, the day before he was facing Le Chanoa Ledwaba in Las Vegas uh, in 2001. And Larry Merchant and I had been so blown away by Ledwaba's skills and balance and timing and all of his attributes on the undercard of uh, Lennox Lewis versus Hassim Rachman in Johannesburg, South Africa, that uh, we didn't know if this Filipino kid, who kind of looked like a teenager, had any chance whatsoever against Ledwaba. And then watch him walk in the following evening and take Ledwaba by storm. I mean, shocking Ledwaba and shocking everybody at ringside with this lights-out performance. Oh, my God. This is Greta Garbo. This is something we've never seen before. Uh, I, I can remember all of that. And, and to see how he has evolved as a human being since that time and the tide of, of emotional and uh, societal forces that he's dealt with and faced and the good and the bad of Manny Pacquiao. And there are some things that I find truly regrettable about him, and there are some things that I find unbelievably admirable about him. But the biggest and most admirable thing goes back to our earlier discussion of why boxing exists. You talk about going from nowhere to somewhere. This is a kid who used to sell stolen cigarettes on the streets of General Santos City so he could survive and have something to eat. And he wound up becoming the most powerful person in his society and one of the most 
emotionally powerful people on the planet in terms of uh, in encouraging people and attracting people to root for him and care about him. That's one of the most amazing life stories of all time. It's right up there with Ali. Hmm. Last question, and I don't mean any offense with this at all, but you represent such an embodiment of professionalism at what you do, being at the zenith of what you do, and yet there's something very unprofessional about how emotional you get with boxing. And I wonder how that contradiction exists in you, which I think has allowed so many of us to connect to you because we're all emotional as well. But most broadcasters, I mean, Walter Cronkite, we see him emotional once, memorably. But it, it seems raw for you. How is this area not um, not professional? Maybe I'm using the wrong word, but why is it so uh, raw for you? What, what, because I can't what, stop it. I mean, because I really because I have zero control over that. I wish that I did. Uh, I embarrassed myself with my loss of emotional control when I'm doing a eulogy at ringside for a sound man who used to work with us, who nobody in the audience probably knows, and I can't stop the tears from flowing, much less when I have to talk about Emmanuel Stewart or Angelo Dundee or Muhammad Ali or anybody else who has become a legitimate friend to me. Uh, it's just impossible. And uh, and I've been advised by people close to me, don't worry about it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Just be yourself. And that's what I have to do because, I, again, I can't stop that part of me. Um, and boxing is the most emotionally resonant sport for me. There's no insulation between the person and the risk in boxing. In football, you have padding and the helmet on. It may not work the way you think it does, but you believe that it does. Almost every other sport has some form of insulation between the person and the risk in the experience. In boxing, it's right there. Somebody's going to hit you in the head with their fist. Be ready. And, um, and I'm still to this day amazed every time I see it, amazed by the human beings who do, who do, excuse me, who do it, and I never ever do it without, at some moment deep inside me, remembering and touching the moment when my mother sat me down and said, "You're going to watch Friday Night Fights on Delay." And by the way, this is Sugar Ray Robinson, and he's the greatest fighter of his time. And and so you know the whole thing feels predestined in a lot of ways. I mean, consider that the very first prize fight I ever attended was Cassius Clay versus Sonny Liston in Miami Beach, February 25, 1964, on a night when uh, Clay won what was seen at that time as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And then 20 years later, I'm sitting ringside in Tokyo calling Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas. And as the late rounds are taking place, and it becomes clear that the only question here is whether Douglas is going to get a decision or knock him out. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, the first fight you ever went to was the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And now you're calling the fight which will succeed it as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. You cannot, at a moment like that, deny that destiny takes a hand. I was meant to be there. So all of it blows me away emotionally. Because when I call a fight, I now 
understand and realize that I'm doing what I was meant to do. Hmm. Do you do you have any nerves about staying with this, coming back to it, and um, writing out some more fights? Does it give you any nerves, or how do you feel about it going forward? Uh, I'll answer that two ways. Uh, point one is I haven't called a fight in two and a half years, so I'd be crazy if I weren't productively apprehensive. I don't want to call that nerves. I want to call that a legitimate urge to be prepared, work, do the best I can, uh, and then not be in a position to uh, to um, puncture my own myths, so to speak. Uh, so that, that that's point one about that. Point two is um, I still believe, even despite the two and a half years off, that I'm as well prepared as anybody in the culture to call fights. That's what I do. That that was my destiny. Uh, and uh, and I've had tremendous instructors all along the way from. Alex Wallow, through Larry Merchant, through George Foreman, through Emmanuel Stewart, every one of them taught me stuff that I still bring to ringside. So um, in that sense, and with with all of them helping me as I go forward, uh, I ain't afraid. Last question. I've heard it said that what makes the best commentator for boxing is who we would most like to watch the fight with us at home. Do you agree with that? Sounds like a good definition. I haven't thought of that one before. Uh, but, yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, I would probably be either a wonderful or annoying companion with whom to watch a fight at home because, obviously, at this point, uh, I can't suppress my observations. I'm not going to sit there and just let you watch the fight without commenting on it. I've probably got something to say. Uh, but if, if people want to hear from somebody who has something to say and has had the experiences that I've had, and once again, who has sat at the elbow of Emmanuel Stewart and George Foreman and Ray Leonard and Larry Merchant and all the people with whom I worked, then yeah, I'm probably the right guy. Jim, thank you so much for this. I think me and many, many people can't wait to hear you call a fight again. So I'm thrilled. All right. Well, give me a few rounds, and, and we'll see. Uh, but I'm very, very excited to be calling a Teofimo Lopez fight because that, again, is true legitimacy. The Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year. How could I say no? <laughs> Thanks so much, Jim. Best of luck. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.